Uh, guys, let's open up in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, uh, we started several months ago, a series in Galatians. Uh, if you're new here, we've been going through the book of Galatians. Typically what we do on Sunday mornings is we take books of the Bible and teach through them. Currently, this is where we're at. So Galatians chapter 4 specifically is what we're going to be looking at here today. I'll give you a very, very fast preface as to what's been going on. Uh, this is a letter written by a guy by the name of Paul the Apostle. He's writing it to a group of believers that started out uh, hearing the gospel that Paul had preached to them. They fell in love with Jesus. They fell in love with the reality that their sins were forgiven. Their defilement was washed away. They were accepted by Jesus. No one else has accepted them. They were accepted by Jesus. That was life transforming news for them, and they were changed. Paul had to leave that particular region of Galatia, and when Paul left, there were these guys that came from Jerusalem. These were the scholars. These were the theologians. Nothing wrong with scholars, uh, nothing wrong with theologians, but these were the scholars and theologians that did not put Jesus first. They put their ideas first. Jesus was somewhere in the margin. They came in and started basically looking at these Gentile believers and the joy and the liberty that these guys had. And they said, problem is, is that you guys shouldn't be so excited and so joyful because you're not really part of Israel. You're not really part of Abraham's children. And they're like, huh, that's not what Paul told us, but wh what do you mean? And they're like, well, in order for you to be truly part of Abraham's family, you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to follow the law, various elements of the law. And uh, they're like, we don't know what that means. Paul didn't tell us about that. And they're like, precisely. Paul's a false teacher. Paul is a man pleaser. Paul likes people to like him, so therefore Paul doesn't like to preach the hard news. And the hard news is be circumcised and believe in Jesus. And Paul doesn't want to tell that because he knows that he'll lose converts. And so a lot of these guys were very confused. Some of them bought the message and they created confusion for other people. And what had happened was this church that started out full of love, this church that started out full of joy, turned into a church that was all about legalism, all about rules, all about all these restrictions, all about cutting off their flesh. And somewhere along the line, Jesus got demoted to the footnote of the page. That's where Jesus stayed until Paul wrote this letter. And he was trying to basically rearrange that and say, we've got to take Jesus out of the footnotes, out of the margins, put him back into the main body of the text, and take all of these other things and get rid of them. Because they're additions to the gospel. Anytime you take Jesus and add something to that, you've actually mutilated the whole point of the gospel. It's another, in other words, it's no longer good news. It's really bad news. Maybe some of you have wondered sometimes why the message that comes out of pastors' mouths or the message that comes out of churches sometimes doesn't make your heart leap. In other words, it's not good news. It sounds like a bunch of rules, restrictions, regulations, series of do's and don'ts, and it leaves your heart feeling overwhelmed. The reason why this is not good news. It's not good news. The good news went out the door. It's gone. It's bad news. Good news is what God has done for you. Done. Finished for you. The bad news, religion, is what you've got to be presently doing for God. That's, that's bad news. It's not good news. Nobody hears religion and says, let's sing songs of love to Jesus. No one hears 
religion and says, I want to fall on my knees and cry out of love for Jesus. When people hear good news of what God has done for you, that's when people are willing to sell everything in order to have Jesus. They're willing to lay aside anything, any lesser joy to obtain, to love, to be loved by God. That's what good news does. Good news causes your heart to leap. Bad news, religion, causes your heart to be full of burdened, burdens and full of heaviness. Jesus comes to take away those heavinesses and burdens and replace it with himself. That's what Paul's trying to do because he's a good pastor. He loves these people. Paul's name has been defamed and destroyed. This was modern times. These people would have had books published about how Paul was a bad guy. These guys would have been publishing blogs, tweeting their friends about it. Word would have been spreading all around the world that Paul's some heretic. And Paul is not writing back to these people saying, look, take me back as if he was an insecure junior high girlfriend. Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what you think about me. What really matters at the end of the day is that you love Jesus. You're adding something to Jesus, and that deeply troubles me because you guys are not just leaving Jesus. You're actually leaving freedom itself. You're leaving freedom. That's what religion does. It takes your life, takes your soul, takes your heart, and it puts it into some sort of a straitjacket, and it puts you back into bondage. That's why Jesus came, was to set us free. So Paul is now writing to this group of believers. Last week we saw he wrote to this group of believers, and basically he's pleading with them as a pastor, saying, become like me. I came like you guys. I was able to lay aside things to become like you, and really at the end of the day, I just want you to be free. Now Paul shifts gears a little bit, as it would seem. Because now in verse 21, Paul begins to now talk about what looks more like a theological argument. And he's going to make references to Old Testament passages. And when you compare verses 21 to about verse 31 to the verses that we had just read last week, which is around verse 12 to around verse 20, it almost looks very different because the verses that we read last week are very passionate. They're almost, almost like the apostles crying. I mean, he's so full of affection, full of, in a lot of ways, good frustration. He's just like, guys, I just want you to be free. It's like really the pleading heart of a good pastor. And now what we read today, what we're going to be reading today is very theological. So either A, Paul is sort of saying, all right, let's stop the crying and let's get to now philosophical, theological argument back on track. So get out your books and your pens and start taking notes. I'm done crying. Or Paul is actually saying, I need to get back to theology because theology is what's actually, a proper theology is actually what is going to keep your mind free. In other words, Paul is not trying to divorce good theological understanding of the Bible from a pastoral plea. Paul is basically saying quite the opposite. He's saying, in order for you to be free, in order for you to maintain freedom, You've got to understand God properly. You've got to have a good theological, good sound theological footing underneath you that's going to sustain you and uphold you and keep you moving forward. Otherwise, without a good theological foundation under you, you will end up falling back into some other variant of slavery. And Paul loves them too much to keep that from happening. So what we're going to look at today, basically, are three things. 
first of which, Paul's going to talk about his argument from a historical background. He's going to bring into the whole picture uh, Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Secondly, we're going to take a look at this allegorical illustration from about verse 24 to 30. And finally, we're going to finish up with Paul, again, this little personal plea that he's going to give. So the first thing I want you to notice is sort of this historical. And before we jump into this, I want to pray, and then we'll get to work on this. Uh, Rather than reading all these scriptures up front first, like we oftentimes do, I'm going to kind of put these under the perspective headings. Then we'll read them, and then I'll talk about them. Hopefully, it'll make a little bit more sense. Uh, it's a very long, sort of tedious port- passage of Scripture. In fact, most scholars, theologians, view this passage as the most difficult in all of the book of Galatians. So we're going to try to do the best we can to try to understand it and package it for you guys without putting it to sleep. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that first and foremost, that this is your word. This is your word. You spoke it through your servant Paul. And God, it's, it's intended to bring us life. It's intended to bring us freedom. So I ask you right now, God, that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us the ability to be able to live this stuff out, to understand it, to know how to properly apply it into our lives. God, we know that everything is working in this world to some degree, even through the hands of the devil, to some degree, get us back into some form of slavery. But God, I pray that you would help us understand that it's your intention to set us free. It's your desire to free us, to free us from sin, to free us from any form of legalism, to free us from anything that will ultimately bring us down and destroy us, rather than allowing us to love you and to love other people. So we just commit this whole time in your hands. Be glorified in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this historical argument, Paul starts out in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to what the law has to say? Paul is basically going to come back. He's actually come back to this on numerous occasions. But the point he's essentially saying to this group of Galatian believers. Now remember, these guys are not Jewish. They're not Jewish. So they grew up without any form of religious law or ceremony. So what you have is this group of Gentile believers trying to act Jewish, trying to do Jewish, uh, Jewish things. And what Paul's saying is that you're not doing the whole law. You're doing bits and pieces of it. You're doing the pieces that are convenient for you. And the pieces that you're doing that are convenient are, you know, you're getting circumcised, which quite honestly, there's really not much convenient with regard to circumcision. But he's like, that's what you're doing. You're doing circumcision. You're keeping the Sabbath days. You're keeping the festival days, Passover, Yom Kippur, all these other things. And the point that I would make is this, is there's nothing wrong with keeping Passover. There's nothing wrong with celebrating certain of these elements. There's really even nothing wrong with being circumcised. Doctors still do that today. But the reality is there is something wrong with somehow saying that this is essential. Mandating it, in other words. Mandating circumcision as a means of entrance into this fellowship of God. Mandating Passover or the celebration of Passover to be part of God's children. Mandating celebrating the Sabbath on a Saturday or even on a Sunday is, is complete opposite, of, is really in the crosshairs of what Paul's trying to deal with. So he's saying, you can't just pick and choose what you want. I find this really interesting that oftentimes people that end up becoming legalists, they usually pick the things that seem most convenient for them. Right? They, they take the things that are most obvious or most convenient for them. I'll give you an example. Um, they usually will take things that are sometimes found in the Bible or things that are good things in the Bible and saying, this is what really resonates with me and this is what I will do and this is what I will make everybody else do. 
I, can, I think of guys like this, for example. A lot of times it's guys. Mainly it's guys. Sometimes it's girls, but mostly it's guys. Usually guys that are young. And usually it's guys that are young that have a very outgoing personality. They're the guys that were like on campus laughing. Everybody liked them. They were very likable type of people. But once they get saved, they become Christians. They continue to be very likable. They've got very outgoing personalities. And now that they're Christian, they're like, what we need to do as Christians is we need to be hardcore about evangelizing. I mean, evangelizing is great. It's a wonderful thing. But what ends up happening is this becomes a single issue in their life where everything revolves around evangelizing. So they'll go down to farmer's market. They'll do stuff that's all about evangelizing. It's wonderful. I think, there's, I think it's wonderful to be able to do that. It's great that these guys have this gift, gift to do that. The problem is, is this becomes sort of a legalism in their life that if they don't do it, if they miss a day, they feel really bad. They feel like they let God down. They feel like they sent a few people to hell because they didn't go share the gospel with them. And they tend to look at other people that aren't doing it as somehow having a deficiency in their Christian walk. It's a form of legalism. And Paul is trying to say is that if you're going to adopt various forms of legal code from the Bible, you got to do it all. You can't pick and choose. You can't be like, I'll take circumcision and I'll not do prayer. Paul's like, you got to do everything. You got to be kosher. I mean, that's what was going on with these guys is they were establishing sort of this you know, salad bar, buffet type, you know, I'll take this, I'll exclude that, I'll live according to this, I'll follow that. And Paul's like, you, you just can't do that. You can't live like that. If you're going to choose to live according to the law or Torah, you have to do all of it. And you'll basically realize the moment you start doing that, you can't do any of it. Because Paul's later going to go on to say, if you break or violate in one portion of the law, you violated the whole thing. The whole thing comes crashing down. It's like a house of cards. No matter how many cards you put up there, one of them falls, the entire thing falls. That's Paul's whole point. Then he goes on to say in verse 22, he says, For it's written that Abraham had two sons, by a slave woman, one by a slave woman, one by a free. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, and the son of the woman was born through promise. Uh, Paul assumes that his readers understand this story. I'm not going to assume that with you guys. I'm going to tell you guys a little bit of the background here. So Paul is talking about this guy by the name of Abraham. I think most of us know who Abraham is and was. Abraham was really the father of many, actually the three major world religions. Muslims trace their lineage back to Abraham. Christians, we look at Abraham, think he's a superstar. Uh, uh, you know, Jews obviously trace everything back to Abraham. So Abraham's a very important theological figure. All right. What you need to understand, though, is that what Paul is trying to say, and a lot of scholars kind of debate why Paul was now introducing this into the argument. Some scholars believe because what was going on, and I think it's probably correct, that these uh, Judaizers, as he calls them, or agitators, were coming into the church saying, um, the way to become true Jews is you've got to be legitimate sons of Abraham. And so they're looking at these guys saying, you're illegitimate. All right. You're Gentile. You guys worship pagan gods, pagan deities. You're illegitimate. Yeah, you're on the right path. I mean, you believe in Jesus. That's good. It's a start, but it's not enough. In order for you to be full-blown legitimate sons of Abraham, you've got to be circumcised because every Jew gets circumcised. That's what these guys were probably saying. And so Paul's like, look, he actually takes their argument and says, I want to take the argument that's being used against you guys to bring you into a form of legalism and bondage. I'm going to turn it upside down. So I'm going to take the very argument that's being used to enslave you, and I'm going to use it against those enslavers 
of you to show you that they're actually wrong. So here's what he does. So he says, Abraham had two sons. One was Isaac. He was born from his wife, Sarah. And another one was a, gal, a guy by the name of Ishmael. He was born from a concubine by the name of uh, Hagar. And so the story goes something like this. When Abraham and Sarah left the land that they had originally come from, and they came into the land of promise, God basically tells them, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And your seed is going to become numerous like the sands of the seashore. God's going to bless you. Amazing things are going to happen through your life, through your lineage. And what had happened was, oftentimes, like the way a lot of God's, a lot, a lot of God's promises happen, is God gives his promise, and then what appears to happen is God just checks out. You're like, uh, God, are you still there? Uh, you told me you're going to do this, but I haven't seen you in like three years I'm getting older, time's ticking, I'm 31 now, I'd love to be married, um, is there anybody there for me? And what ends up happening is sort of this tendency to now distrust God, to distrust the promise. That's what happened with Abraham. Abraham was given this promise, he would have a, he would have a son. He was in his 90s when this happened, actually earlier than that, and in his 90s, what had happened was uh, he began to realize, I, I don't know if this is going to be happening. I'm not sure if I'm going to be getting a son. So Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes in one day and says, you know what? I know God promised a son, but maybe we misunderstood what God was saying. Maybe the son was going to come through you and not through me. And so maybe, maybe what God wanted us to do is, was to help him out. So how about this? So she comes up with this crazy, crazy idea. She's like, you see Hagar over there? cleaning the dishes, sweeping with the broom, cleaning it up, right? She's like our housemaid. How about you do what everybody else does in the culture? Because back in the day, it was completely normal. Like if you had a wife that you were married to and she was uh, uh, infertile, she wasn't able to have babies, um, that was basically viewed as a curse upon your family. Back in that culture, uh, you needed to have children. Children was basically your way of not only getting a workforce, but also at some point kind of raising up your own sort of militia. Right, so your kids get of age, you're like 20 or 12 years old and older, you know, you train them how to use, I don't know, a slingshot, whatever they had back in those days, and you know, if you train them how to hit something, you know, it's like, so you not only got a workforce, but you also got a militia, so the goal is, the objective is to have a lot of boys, have as many boys as you can, so what it ended up happening was if you couldn't have a baby, it was basically viewed as a problem for you, and so Sarah says, how about you take, how about you take our handmaid uh, you know, lay down with her, sleep with her, and have a son from her, and we'll help God out. It'll all be good. Well, obviously, that didn't work out any good. It was actually a really bad plan. And Abraham, you can just imagine, he's just like, you said what, woman? He's like, yeah, you heard, go into home, girl, and it'll be all fine. And Abraham does it. He does it. And it ends up having a child, and the child's name is Ishmael. It's, it was a horrible plan that ultimately ended up breaking a lot of you know, good faith within the situation, within the society that they had. It was horrible. The Bible, you know, the Bible is, is this one, of those, one of these books that oftentimes, for example, like polygamy, it never condones polygamy, all right? People come along and they're like, the Bible says it's okay to be married to many wives. Polygamy is a bad idea, all right? It's a bad idea. It never went good for anybody. Even though it doesn't explicitly condone it, thou shalt not marry five women. Even though it doesn't say that, it does say, 
Marry the wife of your youth. Be in love with her. Have fellowship with her. Let her be your friend. Let her be your lover. And what, it, what would end up happening any time that somebody got greedy and started adding multiple wives, it went bad for the dude, first of all. And then it went bad for the women. It was horrible. It became a very oppressive situation because there was always inevitably going to be one woman that was outfavored over the rest. It was a bad idea. That's what happened with Abraham. And so one son would ultimately be born through Sarah because later what ended up happening, God came to Sarah and said, you're going to have a son. It will happen through you. Nine months later, she gave birth to Isaac. So one son was born of Sarah, of a promise. She's 90 years old. Uh, 90-year-old women don't have babies, all right? They just don't have babies. And so, in other words, it takes an act of God, something miraculous to happen in order for a 90-year-old lady to have a baby. It takes a promise, and it takes a miracle. That's what happened. Secondarily, the other baby, Ishmael, was born not of promise, but of the works of the flesh. That's what Paul's trying to say. So you have two children, one born of a promise, one born of the flesh. The next thing that we're going to take a look at is this allegorical argument. In verse 24, he goes on to say this. Now, I'm going to read this whole thing, and I'll come back, because uh, I, I guarantee it's kind of one of those passages that you're going to listen. You're going to be tempted to fall asleep, but just, just listen to it. Do the best you can to not fall asleep during this one. Here's what it says. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. This woman, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one uh, who has a husband." Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman for her son, with her son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. Told you it was long. Some of you are like, what does that mean? That's my point. We're going to try to unpack that now. Um, This is why it's complicated, right? This is why scholars say it's a really complicated portion of uh, Scripture. First of all, it's complicated because he starts off and says it's allegorical. Sometimes people think, or metaphorical, sometimes people think, well, see, uh, Paul didn't even trust the Scriptures himself. He interpreted them allegorically or metaphorically. That's not at all the case. You can actually believe something is literal and try to make an allegorical statement out of it or context out of it. That's what Paul's trying to do. So yes, Paul believed it actually happened, but he's also now trying to prove a point to these people to whom he's writing to, trying to convince them that even though these agitators, these religious people have come in and have convinced you that unless you're circumcised, you're not really part of God's family. Paul's like, I want to convince you back. I want to convince you back that you are actually part of God's family. You're not part of God's family because you got circumcised. You're not part of God's family because you adhere to the law. In fact, quite to the opposite, Paul would say. You are part of God's family simply because of what God has done for you through Jesus, what we call the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul's trying to bring them back to this, all right? 
So with that being said, let's take a look at the next slide. I want to kind of break it down for you, and uh, I'll give it to you guys in like a graph, because again, just like announcements, I know you guys woke up this morning saying, I really want a graph, so you're welcome. Here it is. Here's the way I want to break this down. You got two guys, two men, two covenants Paul's talking about, and he's doing this in sort of classical rabbinic form, all right? Paul is a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. Meaning Paul is very skilled in learning how to take biblical truths and interpret them or translate them or help others to understand biblical truths. And that's what Paul is doing. So what he's doing is he's trying to compare or contrast two people. One is Isaac, one is Ishmael. And here's what he's going to say. One, Isaac, is born of the promise. Meaning he was born as a result of miraculous promise of God and miraculous intervention. Ishmael, born in the flesh. Nothing miraculous outside of conception. He was conceived. That's where the miracle ended. The rest of it was just Abraham trying to help God out, which, by the way, is never good. Never good. Some of us have been in that place. We know that maybe God promises to some degree to help us. To some degree, we sense that maybe God is going to promise us to give us life. But what ultimately sometimes can end up happening is we begin to think, When's God going to come through? Oftentimes, God, when he, we see these big gaps between God's promises and God's fulfillment, and somewhere in between this gap, we begin to lose heart, we begin to distrust God, and we begin to operate on our own wisdom. And sometimes we might even use arguments like, well, it's, it's all good, right? The culture is doing it. The culture operates this way. But the reality, which you need to understand, is that even though the culture may offer something an alternative that's acceptable, it doesn't necessarily in any mean, and in any ways, mean that it's God's best. That's what had happened with Abraham. He was operating according to cultural standards of the day. He was not out of sync, out of step at all with the way the culture was working, but he was out of sync and out of step with what God was doing. And so therefore, uh, Ishmael was called the son, son of the flesh. Now, let me just say this real quick as well, because some of you might be like, you know, well, what happened to poor little Ishmael? Was he, like, not taken care of, and was he kicked out? And in reality, God actually loved Ishmael, too. God took care of Ishmael, and God even said to Ishmael, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Ishmael went on becoming a great father of many, many nations. So God actually showed great grace even to Ishmael. But the point that I would make is with this is the next thing we see is Isaac was free in this metaphor or idiom. Ishmael was born a slave. Isaac represents this Jerusalem, which is above. And he points out Ishmael represents Sinai. Sinai uh, in the Old Testament was the place that the Jews went to go receive the law. And Paul goes on to say his real intentions behind identifying Ishmael with Sinai is that Sinai or Ishmael actually is uh, being referenced to current day uh, Jerusalem, which is still in their sin, still enslaved by religion. That's what he's saying. This is huge because what Paul is actually affirming is that in the first century, during the time in which he was writing, he was actually saying that current day, present day Jews are outside of the promises of God. It's huge. I mean, this is Paul, a Jew, actually saying my own brothers, my own sisters, my own blood, they don't know God. Some of my argue might be like, well, aren't they being faithful Jews? Aren't they adhering to the Torah? Paul would say, no, they're not. Because good, faithful Jews who adhere to Torah will ultimately be led to Jesus. You understand that? That's what Paul's saying. Good, 
Bible, Torah, and hearing Jews will always be led to their Messiah, which is Jesus. And Paul's saying, just like what Jesus would have said to the religious leaders of the day, you guys search the scriptures, you read your Bible, but in reality, you don't know me. You actually don't even know the Bible. You think you know the Bible. You think you know the scriptures. You think you live according to the Torah. But Jesus levels this intense indictment against them. He says, you guys don't know God. You don't know your Bibles. And you don't live even according to this own religion that you think you live according to. Because if you did, you'd worship me. But you don't. So not only does he point out that Isaac is like the Jerusalem above, Ishmael Sinai, Isaac is fruitless, but now fruitful. In other words, his mom, she didn't have a baby at one time. Now she has a baby. Uh, Ishmael was born by a slave woman into slavery. Isaac, he refers to, these are the Galatian Christians. These are the ones that were born according to promise. God did a miraculous work. They were once not a people. Now they are God's people. They were once outside, as Paul would say in Ephesians, outside the commonwealth of Israel. But now they're grafted into the true Israel of God. And he would say, the true Jerusalem, um, or the true Jews, these Jerusalem agitators, he's going to point out to them, other places he might refer to them as Judaizers, these guys are Ishmael. They're locked, they're born into the flesh, they're slaves. Um, And these Ishmaels, they're the persecutors, they're persecuting the present day Jews, they're going around, bringing these yoke of bondage bondage upon the, the real true Christians, and he's saying the true Isaacs, the true Christians are actually being persecuted. And it's very ironic that oftentimes throughout the history of the church, uh, the majority of persecution uh, oftentimes came, ironically, from the church itself. I mean, yes, there were moments throughout church history where there were emperors and leaders and dignitaries that were bringing pressure upon the church. But throughout the history of the church, the majority of uh, staunch persecution actually came from within the church. And it came because of the legalists within the church, the religion uh, promoters within the church bringing down pressure upon true Christians who were just trying to follow Jesus within the church. And that's what had happened. Finally, uh, he points out with regard to Isaac is that these will actually be the true inheritors of all of God's blessings. Whereas the Ishmaels, they will be cast out. They will be cast out. Paul finishes this little section uh, by really avoiding any type of speculation as to the condition or the eternal fate of these agitators as he describes them. And I love this. I mean, Paul's not going to go on a tangent and start calling these guys heretics. He's not going to call them non-Christians. He's not going to say that they're, gonna, they're kindling for hell. He's not going to say any of this. Paul's basic point is to just simply point out, look, what you do with those that create bondage and those that create confusion and those that try to strap on yokes of bondage upon believers, he says you cast them out. You don't entertain them. You don't deal with them. You don't go to their Bible studies. You don't go into their houses. Don't spend time with them. You try to distance yourself because they are people who are, who are enslaved and they're trying to enslave you just like the two sons of Abraham. That's his point. That's the allegorical aspect of this. The final thing, and I'll wrap it up almost with this, is Paul's personal plea in verse 31. He says this, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That's his whole point. He finishes this little section here to say, look, you guys are my brothers. I'm not talking down to you. I'm not putting you down. I'm not casting you outside of the family of God. In fact, quite the opposite. You are brothers. 
You are Christians. You've been broken. You've been destroyed. You've encountered religion. And religion's everywhere. Jesus was killed by religion. These Galatian believers are being killed by religion. The church today still finds itself confronted by religion and religious figures. It's still happening. You say, why? I think the simple answer is this. All of us, by nature, are trying to find a means and a way within our own efforts to make ourselves right with God. Religion, all religion really is, is it's my attempt to somehow make myself right. That's it. Whether it be with God, with some deity, with the stars, with the yin and yang, whatever, some sort of thing out there with the universe, however you want to define it. It's my attempt to somehow make myself right, to put my life in order, to establish some sort of cosmos or system whereby I can live according to, rather than trusting God's design. That's what religion is. The gospel is God saying, I brought order to all of the chaos for you. I've done it. Your life has no peace, has no shalom. I want to be your peace. Your life's broken. I want to put you back together again. Your life's full of defilement. I'll wash you. Your life's hurting. I'll heal you. That's what Jesus wants to do. But religion says, I'll do it myself. By good strong effort, by devotion, by whatever means, I will get myself back right to, with, with the world around me, with people around me, with God, with whatever type of God I want to make that to be. I want to finish up with this whole idea because in reality, this whole passage here, in fact, the whole story or whole book of Galatians is really about legalism. So what I want to do is I want to basically finish with kind of a funny way of looking at this. I want to ask the question really and kind of point out six ways to become a legalist. Because some of you might right now think, be thinking, I, I, I don't know who the legalist is. I certainly don't think I'm the legalist. Maybe the legalist was the pastor at the last church that I was at. And what I want to try to do is I want to help us understand really how, how do we get to that form of legalism. And then I'll throw in a twist at the very end that might capture all of you guys. So take a look at the next slide. Kind of make this kind of funny. Six ways to be a legalist. All right. Number one. Number one. Make up rules outside the Bible or take the ones that are in the Bible out of the context and make them ultimate. What I mean by make them ultimate is this, is that you can take rules or make up rules that don't even exist in the Bible, right? There's some churches that do this. They're like, don't smoke. It's a sin. Really? I mean, I I don't remember Jesus saying that. I'm not even sure if Paul said that. It's not in the Bible, all right? Smoking is not a sin. I, I hate to tell you that. I mean, it doesn't matter what grandma told you or your last pastor. It's not a, it's not a sin. The, you, can't, you can't say the Bible says that, all right? You may not like it, right? It may not be the way that you want to live your life, and that's fine. Everybody has their preferences and their choice, but you can't say that. You can't say it's in the Bible, all right? It's in the Bible. Don't smoke. You're a legalist. You can't do that, all right? You're putting words in God's mouth. Not a good thing to do. All right? Let God put his word in your mouth. Don't invert that. All right? It's bad territory. So the first thing is you either make up rules outside of the Bible and say, this is what God says. 
Or you take things that are in the Bible and you elevate them to a level that's way beyond the context, way beyond what they were intended, and you make them the ultimate end. Here's what I mean. Rather than the means to the end. Have you ever met people that, you, you know, you can, you can use the Bible one of two ways. You can use the Bible either like a scalpel, or you can use the Bible like this very sharp, ah, not sharp, all right, or a blunt metal object, all right? Both can have some sort of impact upon a body. A scalpel is intended to actually bring healing. You can scalpel away various growths that aren't, growths that aren't good, all right? Or you can use another metal object that may be blunt and bludgeon someone to death. Some people use their Bible as a means to bludgeon others. Others, like Paul, are able to use the Bible, or like Jesus, use the Bible as a means to point out sin, to point out things that need to be changed, but ultimately bring us back to Jesus, back to grace. Religious people love to take the Bible and say, the Bible is all about you living according to these five rules or standards. See, here's chapter, here's verse. Bible says, be an evangelist. You're not. You're a failure. Be like me. The second thing is you zealously try to keep your rules. There's nothing wrong with being zealous. Zealousness is great. Just make sure that you're zealous for the right things. Be zealous for grace and truth and mercy. Be zealous for those things, for love. But if you're zealous for rules that are either, A, not in the Bible, or rules that are out of context from the Bible, and you're zealous for these things, you will ultimately end up become somebody that that's, that's what you're defined by. You're defined by the rules that you've established. The third thing is you will then punish yourself. You will punish yourself when you fail. See, inevitably, you will end up failing at some point. At some point, you will fail and what ultimately ends up happening when you do this, you will punish yourself, you will be your own judge, you will refuse to forgive yourself, you'll mistreat the way that you live and the way that you think about life, and you will abuse it. When, when you fail your own rules and standards that you've chosen to live according to, sometimes you hear people say things like this, I can't forgive myself. What you're actually saying when you say, I can't forgive myself, I've heard people say this like, God will forgive me. I know that. I know God forgives me. I know maybe the person that I offended, they forgive me. But I refuse to forgive myself. What you're actually doing is you're actually saying that God is up here. He forgave me. But God's not ultimate. I'm up over God. And even though God chooses to forgive me, I choose to forgive myself. So therefore, there is a God over God who refuses to grant forgiveness. You understand that? And what you end up doing is you end up trying to atone for your own sin. You live in a mentality like this. You say things like this. Maybe if I give enough money to something, some charitable you know, foundation, or start a cause on Facebook, or sign up for a cause on Facebook, or somehow do something good with my life to just do something kind to help somebody else, then I will be able to atone, and then I can grant forgiveness for myself, and I can go on with my life. That's the way a lot of people live. You sin, you do something dumb, you feel really bad about it, you break your standards, you break your rules, you say, I shouldn't have done that, and then, you know, maybe some of you are at church right now because this is your atonement. 
You had sex with your girlfriend last night. You're like, I feel really bad. I got to go to church to atone for it. You'll go away today. You'll go watch the football game. You'll feel a little bit better. Until the next time you break your own rule again, you'll be back here again. That's horrible, man. Nobody wants to go to church like that. But that's self-atonement. You're trying to atone for your own sin. You can't do it. When you do that, when you live like that, you will inevitably, inevitably back yourself up into a corner where there's nothing else for you to do that's big enough to atone for your own sin. No amount of money you give, no amount of energy you exert, no amount of effort you put out to help other people is going to be sufficient for you. You will be at a place where you will say, I can't forgive myself. You got to knock that idol down. You got to recognize it. The reason why that is like that is because you have a God that's over the true God. The true God says, I will forgive you. The true God says, I will satisfy myself through my son's sacrifice. The true God says, I will wash away your defilement so that I will leave you as white as snow. The true God says, come, let's reason together. Your sin is horrible. It's dark. It's wretched. And I will wash it away to make it as white as snow. You punish yourself. Fourth thing, you reward yourself when you succeed. You feel like you did a good job. You become prideful. You become arrogant. You despise other people. You criticize other people. You feel as if there's no one else that even comes close to comparing to you because you are excellent. <laughs> the fifth thing is this. You nominate yourself to be judged over others. Because after all, I mean, this follows in the line of procession. No one's as good as you. I mean, who knows and has such insight like you? Everybody else is horrible. They fail. They don't have. They can't live according to the same rigorous standards as you do because you're good. I mean, you're really good. Sure, you fail sometimes, but you know what? One of the best ways to get yourself out of that slump is just find somebody who's worse than you. You'll feel really good about yourself. That's the way a lot of people live. That's why sometimes people choose friends. It's kind of a crazy way. I mean, honestly, some people are like, you know what? I want to feel good about myself. So I'll find a circle of friends that are a bunch of losers that all they do is play video games. And if I hang out with them, I'll feel good, even though I'm just working at Taco Bell. It's all good. Oh, there's nothing wrong with Taco Bell. That's fine. But, like, my, my buddies play video games all along, and I, I will just use that, like, little guac gun. You know, it's just like, squeeze that little guacamole gun. You know, anyways, the point of that, you feel better about yourself. But what ends up happening is inevitably you put yourself into a place whereby you are the judge. You, you have the sole rights to judge everybody because you know what's up. You know what's up. The sixth thing is this, is you get angry with those who break your rules or with those who have different rules. This is where sort of that exclusivism comes in or that mentality that becomes very tribalistic, tribalistic, tribalism, where this is our group, our club. We only hang out with people that have the same rules that we have, that share the same uh, ideas that we have. Anybody that has any variant ideas or ide uh, rules or concepts, um, we cast dispersion upon them. We write about them. We push them away. And the whole point of this is that you end up getting angry with those people that are different from you, that don't have the same uh, convictions, same ideas. And you have this mentality that how dare you break my rules because don't you know after all at the end of the day my rules 
are omnipotent and all-powerful and all-knowing. My rules are the most sufficient ones in the universe. And you violated my rules. It's the mentality. Let me just say something real quickly. If you're a parent and you parent your kids like that, you have this mentality that your rules are the all-powerful ones and they can never be violated, never be broken, and you have pride issues that because someone defiled those rules and you have anger issues and you take out frustration and anger upon that and you begin to treat your house like, 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 you're, like you're the tyrant of the house, you will destroy your kids. If you're a boss, if you own a business and you treat your employees like that because they break your rules, your standards that you establish for yourself, then you will destroy them. You will break them. If you are a religious leader, you lead a Bible study, you lead a group of other believers and you hang out with them and you preach the gospel, you go downtown, you're one of those people that loves to evangelize. If that's you, but you do it in a harshness, a criticalness, that you, show, you throw out gospel intermingled with your variant of rules, then you will ultimately end up create people just like yourself. These were people that followed Jesus around. They were looking for things that Jesus did wrong. They were looking to criticize Jesus. And ultimately what you will end up doing is you will begin to form yourself in those people rather than forming Jesus in those people. And you will end up creating a group of people that were just like the tribe of Pharisees that killed Jesus. This is what religion does. This is what legalism does does. Now, some people look at this, and here's my little twist in all this. Some people look at legalism, and they're like, well, that's not me. I'm not the legalist. Well, you might be the opposite of this, and here's a new word I'm going to make up, inverted legalism. You might be the inverted legalist. What I mean is you might look at it and be like, I ain't the legalist. I don't live according to rules. In fact, I have one rule. The reality is the inverted legalist says, I have one rule to live by. The one rule is, is I won't do anything the legalist does. I will live opposite. In other words, the inverted legalist looks at the legalist and says, they say you don't drink. Well, I'm going to drink a lot. The legalist says, don't smoke. The inverted legalist says, I'm going to smoke a pack a day. The legalist says, I, I, you got to give your money and your tithes and your offerings. The inverted legalist says, I will never give a dime to any church, to any organization, to anybody the legalist says, you got to show up at church and serve and help out. And the inverted legalist says, I don't ever even want to go to church. I don't even want to hang out with other Christians. The legalist says, do, do, do. The inverted legalist says, I will never do anything except for myself. Both, both, ironically, are ruled by the same idea. The only distinction is one has a longer list of do's and don'ts. The inverted legalist is actually a slave. He's a slave because his whole life is bound by observing what the legalist is doing and saying, I will do the opposite. You're bound. You're a slave. You're not free. The whole anarchist thing, you're not free. The whole punk rocker thing, you're not free. I mean, back when I was in high school, it was all about punk rock, all right? If you're like the true free dude, you were a punker, all right? You rode a skateboard. You surfed. You never bodyboarded. You never even put anything on that re looked remotely like a rollerblade. You hated those people, all right? You just did, because they're weird. At the end of the day, you're also a slave. You're a slave to trying to be something that you're, the other person is, is. Your whole life is bound. 
The last thing I want to finish with is this. Next slide. It's basically legalism and inverted legalism will make you both bold and unbiblical, arrogant, unloving, and dangerous, and ultimately will enslave you. And Jesus came and says, I want to set you free. I want to set you free to be like me so that you can love those that are trapped in laws and so that you can love those that are trapped by non-laws. At the end of the day, that's what Jesus desires, to set us free, to set us free. We need to understand something, that we gotta stop trying to impress God and start enjoying God. That's what the Christian does. He's not trying to impress God with what he does, with what he's not doing. He's not trying to get God's attention to like him or to notice him or notice her. You are noticed by God. That's why Paul would say earlier in chapter 4, he says that we knew God, but rather more importantly, we're known by God. Yeah, it's great to know God, but you know what's even more amazing than that? God knows you. God knows you. The reality is we just have to stop trying to do things for him to acknowledge ultimately what God has done for us. What God has done for us, that's what the gospel is all about. We gotta stop and we gotta see that religion and irreligion and legalism and inverted legalism really are really our own ways of attempting to try to be right, either by controlling, being overly controlling of the world around us, or in a way of trying to live without any rules or regulations, both of which are our attempts to try to make ourselves right with God or make ourselves right in this universe, make ourselves right in this life. That ultimately just supplements all these other things that we do or don't do in replacement for God who's done for us salvation. I want to finish this up. I'm going to have Evan come on up. And I, I want to I just speak specifically to those of you that may or may not have been affected by religion. All right, here's, here's what I want to say. Some of you, I know I've talked to a lot of you have been brought up in churches, have been in groups, have been in settings where maybe a religious leader there, someone who's leading it, maybe a charismatic dude, whatever, pastor, whatever, someone in the Bible study has this tendency to try to exercise control, has this ability, this uncanny ability of preaching, teaching the gospel, whatever the case is, and they try to exercise control over your soul, and ultimately what ends up happening is one of two things. Either A, you become like that religious leader, who's oppressive, and you become an oppressor. You become religious like them. And you start despising other people that are not like you. Or the majority of people that have been in those sitting, settings come out the other side, and they feel absolutely broken and crushed and destroyed. They feel like, I'm not a good enough Christian. They feel, I don't love God enough. I was talking to a guy earlier this week that just says, I'm, I feel so unworthy sometimes to even call myself a Christian. I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. And then I'd be, I'm around other Christians, guys that are, that are doing it or have this mentality that this is what it's all about. And just I feel so convicted and so condemned. I just told him, I said, look, at the end of the day, that's not God condemning you. God accepts you in Christ. I says, are you in Christ? you love Jesus? I do. God accepts you. God accepts you in the same 
fervency in which he accepts his own son whom he loves. Do you know that? One of the things that absolutely blows my mind is there's this little verse in the New Testament and it says of Jesus that a smoking flax or a dwindling candle that's barely alive, it's just flickering. He says he won't snuff out. Another passage says a bruised reed. A reed was these things that kind of grew in the swamps. You know, you walk through them, they kind of break. They're kind of hanging over like a little branch. It's broken, hanging over. He says, a bruised reed. Jesus won't even come up and just finish the break. What Jesus does is he takes bruised reeds and he heals them. He takes smoking flax. That's just a flicker. And he coddles it and protects it and fans it into a flame. Not by legalism, not by rules, not by all sorts of religious do's and don'ts, but by him laying his life down for you. This is the good news, the gospel of what Jesus did for you. He loves you. He loves you. He laid his life down for you. If you're broken, if you're fragile, if you're wounded, Know that Jesus comes to you and wants to heal you. Religion comes to you and makes you feel worse. Religion comes to you and says you need to do more. Read your Bible more. Act more. Serve more. Do more. Because if you really love God, if you really get the understanding that God did all this for you, you should, out of duty, do this for God. That never motivates a heart just makes people feel even more burdened but Jesus comes along and says you're accepted you're accepted not because you're acceptable but you're accepted because you're in me and I'm acceptable the father loves me and because you're in me he loves you I want you to feel that as we worship and I mean that. I want you to feel that. Feel that in your soul. Feel that in your heart. Know that you're loved by God because of what Jesus did for you. That motivates us to say, I want to love him back. I want to be like this God that is so great. If he forgave me this big, massive amount of sin, then the little things that I got to forgive in my life, maybe with my spouse, my wife, my husband, my kids, co-workers, other Christians that have offended me. That's such a small, minor debt compared to the debt that he forgave me. It moves you to live the Christian life. It's a whole different way to motivate our souls, ourselves, to serve, to love God. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We worship you. We give now our affection, our attention, our song, our our sin, we cast it at your feet. We partake of communion, God, even right now. We remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We come to you, God, right now, trusting in, accepting the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us on the cross. So, God, even right now, as we just come to you, be glorified in this time. Let our songs, God, just be honest. We thank you that you don't judge us or grade us based upon how loud we sing or how passionate we are or how much we give. But God, we're accepted 
on the basis of what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was perfect. And it satisfied you. God, we thank you that even though we're Gentiles, most of us here, that at one point we were outside of all of the promises of Israel, that because of Jesus we have been brought into all of those promises. Inheritors. Something so big, so great, so beyond what we can ever even imagine has become ours. So we devote our worship to you, sing to you, cast sin to you.
God, we thank you that we, we can say that you love us. There's nothing, no other deity, no other God can we say that of. And God, it's just your love for us is not just words. It's not just what you say. It's not just what you declare. It's what you do. You've demonstrated love to us through the cross. God, for that, we're thankful. And God, it's because of that. That's why we want to live for you. It's why we want to love you back. It's why we want to confess sin. It's why we want to let go of things that are, that really don't promise anything other than our own defilement and brokenness. That's why we're glad to cast those things down and lay those things aside to love you because you're a God that loves us incredibly so. So God, I ask you right now that you'd help us to live this as we walk out of here, not by our own effort, our own might, our own strength, our own grit, God, but by understanding the cross, having our affections raised and elevated towards you, God, that that would cause us to walk out of here living like missionaries, the way Jesus was a missionary, being generous like Jesus was generous, being loving like Jesus was loving, being a forgiver like Jesus was a forgiver, being a reconciler like Jesus was a reconciler. So God, send us out of here right now like a bunch of missionaries on mission to serve you in community. As people created in your image, in community, to live in community. God bless the community groups throughout this week. Do amazing things in those gatherings. Let people be set free from chains of addiction and bonds of sin to confess those things to their groups. Give great guidance and leadership and wisdom to those that are overseeing and leading those groups to just, God, bring great connection with Jesus through the cross. We love you. Thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.